I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Chief Justice John Roberts has often said that the judiciary is above politics, but he acknowledged the intrusion of politics during a question and answer session at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand in July of 2017, about three months after the confirmation of Justice Neil Gorsuch. In practice, I think we're experiencing a bit of a rocky road. Um, uh, because um, the judicial process has become overly politicized. It didn't, it, it didn't used to be that way uh, uh, as a general rule. With the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the idea of reforming the court is gaining traction among Democrats. Joe Biden is even campaigning on Barrett's confirmation. Trump got his Supreme Court justice, and he did it for one overwhelming reason, something he's been trying to do since the day he got elected to destroy the Affordable Care Act. However, reforming the court would require Democrats to control both houses of Congress and the presidency. And there are a wide range of proposals for reforming the court. Court packing, term limits, jurisdiction stripping, a supermajority requirement, a balanced bench, and even a lottery system. Joining me is constitutional law professor David Posen of Columbia Law School. David, Biden has said that he doesn't like the idea of term limits or packing the court. And if elected, he would appoint a bipartisan commission of constitutional scholars to study court reform. Aren't presidential commissions where ideas go to die? In some cases, although I think there'll be a lot of pressure on this commission to produce some recommendations for reform. I'm not sure what will garner bipartisan consensus, but... There's a pretty broad agreement, at least among legal scholars, that the time has come to think about fundamental reforms to the court, and there are many options to choose from. So let's start with court packing, which seems to be the most popular at this point, adding justices to the court. Is there any doubt that that is constitutional? One could imagine arguments that there's some kind of unwritten norm against expanding the size of the court, given that it's been well over a century since it's happened and that there was strong pushback to FDR's proposal to do that. The idea that that norm has now reached the point of enforceable gloss on the Constitution itself, however, it's pretty outlandish. And given that the constitutional text says nothing about the size of the court, that Congress has changed the size numerous times throughout our history, albeit not for over a century, It's a pretty radical argument that it would be unconstitutional to increase the size of the court. How difficult would it be to accomplish this? Well, assuming that it's uh, constitutional, as is the mainstream view, to expand the size of the court, it would take ordinary legislation. So you would need the House and the Senate to agree on a bill, and the president would have to sign the bill into law, and then you just have to fill the new justiceships with new appointees. I mean, compared to other proposals that might require a constitutional amendment, it would be relatively straightforward. There would, of course, be a huge fight over the proposal. 
I'd imagine, and the politics would be very intense. But as far as the formal mechanics of getting it done, we're just talking about ordinary legislation. Many constitutional scholars oppose the idea of court packing. What's your opinion? Well, I guess my view is that term limits are basically a no-brainer for ensuring regular turnover and reducing incentives for strategic behavior and bringing some predictability and fairness to the process. So I'd start there. About expanding the court, I feel ambivalent. It would be a more controversial move. It carries more escalation risk. But it is clearly constitutionally permissible to do. And there's something that just seems to me deeply wrong about 51 plus years straight of Republican control of a court. Um, I don't think Republicans would feel okay about that if there were 51 plus years of Democratic control of the court. And moreover, there's ample evidence that the Roberts Court's election law decisions have systematically entrenched a Republican Party that's no longer confident about its ability to win free and fair elections. So the court itself um, is producing the conditions under which Republicans are going to continue to have this imbalanced court and unfair advantage. And so I never thought I would say this, but I'm open to expanding the court in a way that I haven't been in the past because of those factors. I think it has to be kept on the table at least. But it seems to me term limits eventually will bring the court into closer alignment with the country and electoral outcomes. Um, But as a stopgap measure, um, court expansion has to be seriously explored, given um, the circumstances under which the court got so imbalanced uh, and given the court's own rulings that um, are reshaping politics in a way that um, it's hard to explain except with reference to partisan entrenchment. So one of the proposals is for staggered terms and 18-year limits for future justices. So that's a system where one seat would come open every two years. Now, we assume that every change would face legal challenges. Would this face constitutional challenges? The term limits proposal has been around for several decades now in the academic literature and has had strong support on the right as well as the left. And there are versions of it that are meant to be done in a way that would not require a constitutional amendment and could be done, again, by ordinary legislation, although there's debate about exactly what would be permissible. So most proposals do not have a justice simply cease being a federal judge after his or her 18-year term is up because there's a provision in the Constitution that says judges get to enjoy their office during good behavior. That has traditionally been understood to mean that they get to stay as judges for life, life tenure, unless they're impeached. And most term limit proposals have the justices becoming senior justices or only hearing certain sorts of cases or possibly going down to a lower court. But in any of those configurations, still serving as a judge in some capacity after 18 years. And that's to allow for this to be done by ordinary legislation, not by a constitutional amendment. I think that the term limit proposal is probably the most likely to come out of Biden's commission, assuming it goes forward, precisely because it has been endorsed by Republicans and Democrats over the years. As far as I know, the U.S. is the only country in the world that doesn't use term limits, mandatory retirement ages, or both for its highest court judges. So you know, to bring some regularity and predictability to the appointment process, lower the stakes of some of the appointment fights, and bring the U.S. in line with the rest of the world, 
term limits makes a lot of sense. It does not, however, respond to the concern of Democrats that the court has become extremely imbalanced over recent years. And so it's not clear it would be a sufficient reform, even if it's necessary to get the court to a to a better place. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question, because term limits doesn't change what will be a six to three court. Right. In the, in the long run, it might, because once the term limit scheme became fully operational, each president would get two justices in a four-year term, and eventually we would get, therefore, more partisan balance on the court based on who, who won the presidential elections. As it is now, a majority of the justices have been appointed by a Republican president continuously since May 1969. So we're over 51 years now, Republican control of the Supreme Court in a period in which Democrats control the Senate more than half of the time. Democratic presidents had five terms and won the plurality vote of the election, six of the last seven elections, so that we would have such a Republican stranglehold on the court in a period in which our politics has not been nearly so dominated by that party has been calamitous for for Democrats and makes it hard to see how they would accept term limits as adequate in the near term. Hence, the, the, all the discussion about expanding the size of the court or other moves that might disempower the court, given the way in which it's become so dominated by Republicans, who, who I might also add, are increasingly internally homogeneous in their jurisprudential styles. And are term limits constitutional? The term limits proposal has been around for several decades now in the academic literature and has had strong support on the right as well as the left. And there are versions of it that are meant to be done in a way that would not require a constitutional amendment and could be done again by ordinary legislation, although there's debate about exactly what would be permissible. So most proposals do not have a justice simply cease being a federal judge after his or her 18-year term is up because there's a provision in the Constitution that says judges get to enjoy their office during good behavior. That has traditionally been understood to mean that they get to stay as judges for life, life tenure, unless they're impeached. And most term limit proposals have the justices becoming senior justices or only hearing certain sorts of cases or possibly going down to a lower court. But in any of those configurations, still serving as a judge in some capacity after 18 years. And that's to allow for this to be done by ordinary legislation, not by constitutional amendments. I think that the term limit proposal, probably the most likely to come out of Biden's commission, assuming it goes forward precisely because it has been endorsed by Republicans and Democrats over the years. As far as I know, the U.S. is the only country in the world that doesn't use term limits, mandatory retirement ages, or both for its highest court judges. So to bring some regularity and predictability to the appointment process, lower the stakes of some of the appointment fights, and bring the U.S. in line with the rest of the world, term limits makes a lot of sense. It does not, however, respond to the concern of Democrats that the court has become extremely imbalanced over recent years. And so it's not clear it would be a sufficient reform, even if it's necessary to get the court to a to a better place. This week, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden said he doesn't like the idea of term limits or packing the court. I'm not a big fan of court packing. I'm not a big fan of saying we're just going to add X number of, but I'm going to listen. I've been talking to Professor David Posen of Columbia Law School about court reform. Biden also said, quote, there's some literature among constitutional scholars about the possibility of going from one court to another court and not always staying on the Supreme Court. But I have made no judgment. What is he referring to there? I assume what he means by that is that the Supreme Court justices 
at the end of their term under a term limits reform would ride circuit, which means that they would sit on lower federal courts, go around the country serving as a judge on the various appellate courts. could be done many different ways. It's been done in the U.S. history. Supreme Court justices rode circuit in the early republic. And the basic motivation behind it is that it would allow the justices to continue to be federal judges, even after the expiration of their term. And that's meant to make the reform consistent with the good behavior clause. You get to keep your judgeship during good behavior. The funny thing about Biden's comment is you just noted, on the one hand, he suggested he might be against term limits. On the other hand, he suggested the justices might move around to different courts. Well, the reason you have justices move around to different courts is because you have a term limits reform. And you need to do something with the justices at the end of their term to allow them to continue to be federal judges, but not serve as active full-time Supreme Court justices. So there's a bit of a tension between those two remarks. I looked at what Biden actually said about term limits. He said it's a lifetime appointment. And I just want to note that the term limits proposals that are out there continue to have justices having a lifetime appointment, but it's as a federal judge, not necessarily as a full-time active Supreme Court justice hearing all cases that the court hears. So I'd like to think that Biden wasn't ruling out term limits when he said that comment, because that would seem to me a very strange thing to take off the table in advance of a commission, and especially given that it's almost low-hanging fruit at this point to do term limits compared to other moves he might make. Let's turn now to jurisdiction stripping, which would limit the power of the court to review certain laws. So lawmakers would put a provision in the legislation that says this law is outside the bounds of Supreme Court review. That's right. There are many forms of jurisdiction stripping, but the basic idea is to disempower the court from hearing that sort of case at all. So this is another solution that only deals with future federal laws. Potentially, jurisdiction stripping could apply to existing laws as well. But you're right. One, it would, it would be very hard to draft a jurisdiction stripping provision to cover only what the proponents wanted to cover and nothing else. And two, there would be constitutional challenges to any such effort. There's an extremely complex literature on jurisdiction stripping, and everyone agrees that Congress can't dictate the outcome of a specific case, but that has some power to prevent the court from hearing various other general categories of cases in its appellate jurisdiction. But in between those polls, there's a lot of disagreement. And as far as what it would cover, if it could be done successfully, it would only insulate some swath of legislation that a future Democratic Congress might try to pass. Most people think about the Green New Deal or healthcare reform as areas that the Congress might try to insulate from court review. But it's long been known that Congress has pretty broad powers to do jurisdiction stripping. There's been something of a taint on the idea because it was opponents of civil rights in the middle of the 20th century who were the most forceful advocates of jurisdiction stripping, trying to prevent the court from making further civil rights rulings. But there's nothing inherently partisan about the idea. It could be applied to progressive ends as well as to reactionary ends. And it seems to be gaining some some support, at least among liberal legal scholars. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote about jurisdiction stripping when he was at the Justice Department. Did he find that it was constitutional? There is no all-purpose general answer as to the constitutionality of it because much depends on the specifics. As I recall, he noted that Congress has broad powers to do jurisdiction stripping and seemed to take a fairly expansive view of Congress's authority to do it. But you know, he didn't purport to give an all-purpose answer as to its constitutionality. Another proposal is imposing a supermajority requirement for the court's vote in certain high-profile cases. How would that work? So the standard proposal there is for federal statutes 
not for state statutes or for federal executive actions, there would be a requirement that to invalidate the statute, the court not just do it by a simple majority vote, as is currently the practice, but some kind of supermajority threshold, two-thirds potentially. This idea has been around for a long time. The House in the 1800s, if I recall correctly, endorsed a version of it in North Dakota and Nebraska right now. It's how their state high courts operate. And it would make it harder for the Supreme Court to wield the most awesome power it wields, which is to strike down federal legislation as unconstitutional. And so if you had a Green New Deal, again, or major health care reform done by statute, court would have to get not just to 5-4, but to 6-3 or 7-2 or whatever it is to strike it down. So if you want to see the court striking down less that Congress does and restore legislative supremacy over the lawmaking process, then there's something appealing about it. Would it survive legal challenges? Uh, This, too, is is contested. There are reasonable arguments, I think, on both sides of this one. Against it, some have suggested that it violates the norm of judicial independence or separation of powers that Congress not prescribe decision procedures for the court. On the other hand, it's been done at the state level, and Congress does have broad control to organize the court's functions in a lot of ways. We just talked about stripping jurisdiction to hear whole sorts of cases, and it's at least plausible that Congress could do this. I should note, clearly constitutional would be if the court itself adopted some kind of norm to this effect. It's a contested issue, and the proposal, as far as I can tell, remains a kind of academic darling among some liberal scholars, but hasn't got much traction in in our politics yet. So I don't think it's likely to come out of a Biden commission, but it is a pretty straightforward response to the concern that the court is striking down. Speaking of something that hasn't gained traction, balanced bench was advocated by Pete Buttigieg when he was running for president. So the court would start with 10 justices, five chosen by Democrats and five by Republicans with lifetime appointments to the court. Then those 10 justices would select an additional five from the federal appeals courts who would join the Supreme Court for one-year terms. Do you think that would work? That version of a, of a partisan balance requirement was endorsed by Mayor Pete, drawing on a law review article that had come up with that idea. I want to say that it could be done in other ways. For example, it doesn't need to be the case that the current justices select some subset of justices to join them. It could all be done through the Senate and the president. But in principle, a partisan balance requirement strikes me as another plausible option here, given what we were talking about earlier. And this, too, could be done many different ways. For example, who gets to select the justices from which party has been a matter of some dispute? Would senators from each party draw up a list from which the president would choose? A lot of judges don't affiliate with one or another party to preserve their appearance of neutrality. So how would you classify those judges? What if judges switched parties or became affiliated as independent so as to, you know, circumvent a requirement. There are a lot of thorny questions at the level of detail. But in principle, I could see this coming out of a Biden commission, too, because by its very nature and by its very label, a partisan balance requirement is meant to transcend partisan politics and therefore ought to have some bipartisan appeal, I would think. There's also a suggestion of a lottery system, which seems a little odd for the highest court in the land. The proposal calls for every judge on the federal appeals courts to also be appointed as an associate justice on the Supreme Court. And then every two weeks, a panel of nine justices would be selected randomly to hear cases, with each panel limited to no more than five judges nominated by a president of the same political party. This seems like there would be no consistency on the court. 
I might say that we currently have a version of a lottery system today in that when seats open is a function of the contingencies of when people happen to die and strategic retirement by certain justices and the fact that, you know, the court six Republican does not track electoral results at all. So I just want to note there is a somewhat random and arbitrary character to the composition of the court today. That doesn't justify institutionalizing a lottery method. I think it's a very clever proposal. Academics generally like randomization as a strategy to get around perceptions of imbalance in institutions. But as you say, this one seems to cut against strong norms and instincts that the court should have some stability, some regular cast of justices who can develop a coherent jurisprudence together and and afford more continuity for the court as an institution. So I guess I always thought of this solution as very smart and also very gimmicky and therefore unlikely to come out of a bipartisan commission of, of any kind. But precisely for the reason you identified, that it would shake up the court, you know, routinely, it has been attractive to some people who think the court is far too powerful in American life and like the idea of kind of destabilizing the institution, at least in the sense of not allowing the same small set of individuals to exercise such awesome power for so long. So if you're generally comfortable with judicial review as practiced today, but you're uncomfortable with the extreme power wielded by a small set of specific individuals, there's something appealing about moving to a lottery system. But again, I think it's perilous to make political predictions, but it seems to me unlikely to come out of a commission. Which of these ideas do you favor? I I think term limits are basically a no-brainer at this point. And indeed, I haven't really even seen serious academic objections to the idea, except for people saying that it might have to be done by constitutional amendment. On the merits of the proposal, um, it seems to me compelling to... Uh, limit justices to 18 years, which is a very long term, actually, comparatively. Most high court judges abroad don't get that much. So we'd have adequate protections for judicial independence, and we wouldn't have such randomness uh, and potential unfairness in who gets uh, on the court when. It's still a disaster Democrats haven't recovered from that Jimmy Carter got no picks in his uh, one term as president, whereas President Trump now has three. I don't think any system designer would allow for that. if starting anew. So term limits seem to me um, quite compelling. I I could go on with more and more reasons. Justices, for example, are sitting on the bench today much longer than they used to in the past. Prior to 1970, justices were on the bench for about 15 years on average. Since 1970, it's been over 25 years on average that justices have stayed on the court. So we also have a problem in lack of of turnover. That said, um, I'm also very worried about the way in which the court has become unmoored from any kind of democratic legitimacy, given how imbalanced it's become. Um, I also worry that the court's election law rulings are entrenching uh, a minority party's rule in ways that um, uh, have profound anti-democratic potential going forward. So I think uh, if you were President Biden, you have to remain open to expanding the court or to um, supermajority voting requirements or other ways to get at um, uh, this imbalance and the court's uh, extreme power to we, to to um, get in the way of democratic majorities. Um, I would start with term limits, and I I I feel uncomfortable about everything else, but I think um, it's all got to be on the table. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, David. That's constitutional law professor David Posen of Columbia Law School. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. As President Trump voted early in Florida, he continued to cast doubt on mail-in ballots. Everything was perfect, very strict, right by the rules. When you send in your ballot, it could never be like that. It could never be secure like that. A dizzying array of Supreme Court orders and opinions has left the rules governing the presidential election in flux. This week, in rapid succession, the court has allowed extra time for mail-in ballots to arrive in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, but rejected calls for a similar extension in Wisconsin, with opinions by some of the conservative justices leading to questions of whether they'll be a Bush v. Gore 2.0. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. So, Greg, Pennsylvania and North Carolina are among several pivotal states with legal clashes over ballot deadlines. And this week, the court dealt two blows to Republicans over mail-in ballots in those states. Tell us about it. Yeah, they came back to back June. The first one had to do with Pennsylvania. Now, if you recall, about a week and a half ago, the court refused to disturb this three-day extension for ballots to arrive in Pennsylvania. That was a 4-4 vote. And Republicans are trying again to block that extension, and they're asking the court to take up their appeal and put it on a fast track so they could decide before the election. And the court, over three dissents, refused to do that in Pennsylvania. The appeal is still pending there, and the court could take it up later, just as Sam Alito said, but the court's not going to decide that before the election. And the second thing they did, just moments after that, came out of North Carolina, where there's a six-day extension. This one actually adds on to an existing three-day extension for ballots to arrive. And the court allowed that extension to stay in place in North Carolina. They rejected a Republican bid to stop it. Three conservative justices said they would have blocked that extension, which was ordered by a state election board. For now, it appears as though ballots that arrive as late as nine days after the election in North Carolina will count. Tell us about Justice Alito's statement in the Pennsylvania case and who joined him. He was joined by two of the other very conservative justices, Thomas and Gorsuch. He said essentially that he's really troubled by this extension ordered by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which was interpreting its state constitution. And he pointed, as other justices had, to a constitutional provision that says that the state legislature gets the primary, at least the primary role in setting the rules for presidential elections. And he strongly suggested he would vote to reverse that ruling, but conceded there's not enough time to do it before the election, said there will be time, another opportunity after the election. And he noted that the state has agreed to segregate those ballots that arrive late, put them in a different pile so that if the court, after the fact, decides that those ballots shouldn't count, there will be an easy way to just subtract them from the total or at least not add them to the total. So if we have a really close election where Pennsylvania is the swing and it's decided by only a few votes, this issue absolutely will come back again. So, Greg, where was Justice Amy Coney Barrett? She'd been sworn in on Tuesday. Why didn't she participate in these cases? 
Well, according to a statement that the court put out, she didn't participate because, uh, I'm going to quote here, of the need for a prompt resolution and because she has not had time to fully review the party's filing. The Republicans rushed to confirm her, the president pushed for confirmation so that she could be in place to decide things like this, and she didn't hear. It's not clear at what point she will decide to engage in deciding these questions. There are, of course, calls for her to recuse from these cases, and it's possible, I'm just speculating here, that she is trying to work through that, maybe say something about what she's going to do on that question, and that is an explanation for why there's a delay, for why she didn't take part so far. It's a bit of a mystery. It's very much a uh, stay tuned, and, and we'll see. You had the conservatives, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, joining in that statement. But Kavanaugh did not join in that statement, even though his concurring opinion in a Wisconsin case has drawn a lot of publicity. So is there any indication where Justice Kavanaugh was in the Pennsylvania and North Carolina cases? Justice Kavanaugh may be an even bigger mystery than Justice Barrett. So in neither of the cases was his name mentioned at all. In both cases, the court put out the order for the court as a whole, and some justices, the three conservatives, chose to say something about their views on the case. Kavanaugh did not. It's pretty hard, although perhaps not impossible, to square allowing the North Carolina extension while doing what he did on Monday night, saying he would block the extension in Wisconsin. But there might be an explanation that we find out later. There's a really good chance that he is going to be the deciding vote in whatever we have here. We're seeing Chief Justice Roberts be a lot more reluctant to second-guess state decisions on election law, a lot less willing to intervene. We put them on the side of the court's liberals. And we're speculating about Justice Barrett, but this may come down to the extent to which Justice Kavanaugh is willing to overturn something that a state court or a state official did and instead to defer to, say, a Republican state legislature. And there's some indications he would side with the Republican state legislature, but there's a little more mystery here. So let's talk about that Wisconsin case, five to three decision that rejected Democratic calls to reinstate a six-day extension for the receipt of mail ballots. Tell us about Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence there that drew so much attention. Yeah, he he wrote a really strong concurrence there in which he said a couple things. So first of all, that case involved a federal judge, not a state Supreme Court like in Pennsylvania, a federal judge ordering an extension because of COVID and mail delays. And even Chief Justice Roberts agreed with the conservatives that a federal judge does not have the authority to do that when there's a clear statutory command, and especially when it's happening right before an election. Justice Kavanaugh wrote an opinion explaining that. He also went further and cited the Bush v. Gore decision from 2000, and in particular, a concurrence in that case by conservative justice, where he argued for the ability of the Supreme Court to overturn decisions by state Supreme Courts, not just federal, which, of course, is what happened in Bush versus Gore. And along the way, Justice Kavanaugh said a few things that sounded a bit like Donald Trump. He talked about how if there were late ballots, there could be charges of rigged election. He talked about chaos and suspicions of impropriety. He talked about states wanting to be able to announce the results of an election on election night. There were some errors in the opinion. And Justice Elena Kagan, in her dissent, was pretty critical of Kavanaugh. 
she sure was. She took on a lot of those things I just described, including one other thing you said, which is that there would be a perception that the results of an election would flip. He used that word flip if late arriving ballots overturn the earlier results. And she shot back that there are no results to flip until all the ballot votes are counted. And she said nothing could be more suspicious or improper than refusing to tally votes just because the clock struck 12 on election night. Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.